Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang, and today on The Detail... US health regulator, the FDA, has authorised use of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine for children aged 5 to 11 years old. For parents all over this country, this is a day of relief and celebration. After almost 18 months of anxious worrying every time the children to your child had a sniffle or started to cough, well, you can now protect them. America has become the first country to give the Pfizer vaccine to younger children, and others are following suit, some taking it one step further. Costa Rica has become the first country in the world to make COVID-19 vaccinations mandatory for children. Costa Rica signed a deal with Pfizer to require 3.5 million doses to be administered beginning next year. StatsNZ estimates that there are more than 460,000 kids in New Zealand aged 5 to 11 years old. So, should we be vaccinating them? The COVID illness is generally mild in most well children, but we do have some particular vulnerable children and we do have an ethnic disparity that we need to think about. The vaccine needs to be very, very, very safe if we're going to give it to healthy children because the risk of COVID-19 to a healthy child is low. And what would a vaccine rollout for children look like? We need to acknowledge that schools have always been involved. They are places that have been uh, venues, that they're places that have shared information. The saying that we have in paediatrics is um, children are not little adults. (laughs) And I think that that's very relevant here. Dr Jin Russell is a developmental paediatrician in Auckland. She explains why children can't take the same vaccine that adults do. The first reason is because COVID-19 doesn't affect children in the same way that it affects older age groups. And so when we're thinking about vaccinating children under the age of 12, we've got a different set of analyses to do. We have to look at the pros and cons for children. The second reason is because we're waiting on supply of a paediatric formulation of the vaccine. So there's a logistic reason as well. What have we found um, about how they are affected? In general, for most children, uh, COVID-19 would be a mild or asymptomatic illness. In fact, some Australian paediatricians are saying, based on studies that they've done, that COVID-19 infection in children is is asymptomatic, so no symptoms at all, children don't feel any different, in about half of cases. Rarely, there is severe illness in children. This can look like children getting pneumonia, for instance, and needing to be in hospital. For older age groups, they are more at risk. Uh, But for children under the age of 12, needing to be admitted to hospital for a period of time because of severe illness is is actually quite rare. And um, there are very few uh, children, for instance, under the age of 18 who have been admitted to ICU in Australia. I use Australia as a case example because they've had 41,000 cases of COVID-19 in children under the age of 18. They've had very few cases that have needed ICU. They tended to be older adolescents who weren't vaccinated. Some children do need to go to hospital, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a severe illness. Sometimes little children have needed to go to hospital because they need some fluids. Maybe they've been vomiting, they need some fluids and they need a bit of support for 24 hours or so. Some children have needed a bit of oxygen. It tends to be a brief stay and then home. A large chunk of hospitalizations in children in Australia, for instance, have been because 
their caregivers were sick with COVID-19. And so the children have needed to be admitted too. In general, about one to 2% of children have needed to be in hospital or present to hospital with COVID-19 in Australia. Um, but only a very small number of those children have been very sick. So with those kind of stats then, why do children need to be vaccinated? So I've done quite a bit of thinking around this, and I think it would still be very worthwhile to vaccinate as many children as we can to protect from COVID-19. So the first reason is because there are lots of children in New Zealand who might be at slightly increased risk of having severe illness should they catch COVID-19. Now, I should say that this is not exceptional for COVID-19. Lots of respiratory viruses have this kind of impact on children who have pre-existing conditions. Children who have heart conditions or chronic lung disease, or they have cerebral palsy or Down syndrome, for those children, it makes immediate sense to vaccinate them. And because of that, because we want to protect these children who are at slightly increased risk, it's a smart idea to get that level of community immunity amongst children. The second reason is because if COVID-19 was to surge in New Zealand the same way that we've seen in some US states which have low levels of vaccination, even if severe illness is rare, you can see severe illness much more frequently. For instance, in in the US, even though it's very rare for children to need to go to paediatric intensive care, for instance, from COVID-19, in Texas, they actually ran out of paediatric ICU beds during their paediatric COVID surge. Mm. Um, And that's just because if you've got that many cases, even, you know, 0.01% becomes a a large number of children. How many um, paediatrics ICU beds do we have? According to Starship's website, there's physical capacity for 16 paediatric ICU beds, along with a six-bed high dependency area. And according to the website, they admit approximately 1,100 children each year. There is the ability to look after children around the country who need intensive care to some extent. They're often in open ICUs, so a mixed adult and paediatric intensive care. But when we're looking at dedicated paediatric ICU beds, those are at Starship. Dr Jen Russell says the disproportionate effect on Māori and Pacifica children is something to consider, as well as what happens to kids when their caregivers get sick. If a child was to be infected and they brought it home to their bubble, the people in their bubble who were unvaccinated perhaps or who were maybe fully vaccinated but still susceptible could become sick. Their parents or their caregivers can actually end up isolating or fall very sick uh, and possibly even die. A heartbreaking new study in the journal Pediatrics finds that COVID caused more than 140,000 U.S. children to lose a parent or grandparent caregiver over the past 15 months. That's one in every 515 children. Black and Hispanic children were even more likely to lose a caretaker. When we're looking at vaccination and looking at the pros and cons, we shouldn't take just an individual risk-benefit analysis to it because vaccination is not an individual endeavour. If we're reaching 90% vaccinated across the country, we could get so much higher if we vaccinated children as well. To do that, I I do have to emphasise the vaccine needs to be very, very, very safe if we're going to give it to healthy children because 
the risk of COVID-19 to a healthy child is low. This is a very big moment in the pandemic. Right now, kids as young as five years old are getting their first doses of Pfizer's COVID vaccine. The U.S. started vaccinating children after it received FDA approval. I hear that uh, there's possibly about one in four parents in the U.S. when they surveyed them who were keen for their children to be vaccinated. And the rollout has just started with a Pfizer pediatric dose. It's a third of an adult dose, and they're using a special pediatric formulation of the vaccine. It's expected that within the next four to eight weeks, they might administer in the US something like two million doses. And if that's the case, we would only need to wait a couple of months before we had much more data on safety for children. So one of the reasons why it's good for us to be patient and to not try and rush a vaccine rollout is because when I said that the vaccine needs to be very, very safe for healthy children, it needs to be understood that the Pfizer phase two, three trial of five to 11 year olds included less than 2,400 children in that age group. And so on the basis of that data, it's difficult to know how common rare side effects of the vaccine might be. And if you go to vaccinate healthy children, it'd be really helpful to have that kind of information based on the frequency of rare side effects that are seen in adolescents. The FDA felt comfortable to approve the vaccine for use in younger children, expecting that uh, there would be even fewer side effects in five to 11 year olds because the dose of vaccine is smaller. I think the debate around vaccinating children is legitimate, but I think that here in Aotearoa, because we have such a susceptible group of children and we've had very little immunity amongst children from infection because of the success of the elimination strategy, uh, we might choose to have a lower threshold for vaccinating all of our children. Dr Tuila Percival is a Samoan paediatrician at Middlemore Hospital in Auckland. She has more than 20 years' experience under her belt and works closely with the South Auckland community. I ask her what she's hearing on the ground about vaccinating children. To be honest, at the moment, I guess I'm thinking about frontline workers who are out there swabbing and vaccinating and doing home visits and on the phone trying to support people. The frontline is so focused on vaccinating and supporting people at the moment and supporting COVID cases in the home. You know, it's it's scrambling and working really hard to do what they need to do now. I think the issue of vaccinating younger children is coming onto the horizon. People are starting to think about it. And certainly um, parents are thinking about it, but I, not in any depth. I don't think the community is starting to talk about this enough. Um, you, there's so much else that people are focusing on at the moment. But Dr Tuila Percival says when it comes to the debate of vaccinating children, she always thinks about those who are the most vulnerable. So the, the children with chronic lung problems or neurological disabilities or chronic heart problems or immune deficiencies are going to be very vulnerable. And we know those kids probably have a 1 in 20 chance of needing to come into hospital if they get COVID because they'll need oxygen, as opposed to a very well child where the chance is very uncommon. It's 1 in 500 chance of ending up in hospital. So there's an ethnic lens that needs to be put onto COVID disease. So um, in New Zealand, we know that Māori and Pacific adults are more likely to get more severe COVID 
illness than Pākehā New Zealanders. So, yes, it, it's there's no clear answer. The, the COVID um, illness is generally mild in most well children, but we do have some particular vulnerable children and we do have an ethnic disparity that we need to think about. And if we have a tool that is safe um, to protect children, we shouldn't discount it. And if we have a rollout for children, how do we ensure it is equitable? I think the first thing when you're looking at a, a rollout of anything or something you're taking to your population is you need to measure it. So if you have as your prime target that it will be 95% for Pacific and for Māori and for, if you set it as your target and you measure it, then you're going to pull in your services and your resources to do that. So for Pacific, we've certainly learned that it's really important to have multiple ways of vaccinating. So you would use general practitioners, you would use school-based services, you would use outreach nurses, you would spend a lot of time talking with the community and getting their views on how we could do this better. And you may well find some communities say, this is how we want to do it. We want to do it using our churches. And I think the important thing, what we've learned with COVID and adults is listening to the community. So when the community come up with suggestions, we run with that and resource that rather than just coming up with a, a rigid booking system. You know, I think we have to be flexible and absolutely listen to communities and partner with them when you, when you do things in health. What is the difference between, because right now 12-year-olds can get vaccinated, right, um, but mm. 11-year-olds can't. What's the difference between the age? Well, it's just purely the, um, the vaccine trial data. So they did the trials at, with bigger numbers in older children, adolescents earlier. So that data came in earlier. And there's much more experience, of course, in watching those children for side effects and serious adverse effects. So it's, you know, physiologically, the difference between an 11 and 12-year-old, there's not a lot of difference. There probably is between a 5-year-old and a 12-year-old. But that age cutoff has presented some difficulties for Angela Lowe, who's the principal of Newlands Intermediate in Wellington, and also the incoming president of the Association of Intermediate and Middle School. And it's not even about vaccinations. 50% of our schools are 12 years of age and 50% aren't. That certainly created some, not necessarily tensions, but some confusion and frustration in the intermediate middle school sector about the arbitrary line of a 12-year-old. And I'll give you an example. When it first came out that 12-year-olds needed to wear a mask on the school bus and then the public bus, I've got about 150 kids on both of those two modes of transport. So I get on the bus at the very beginning of these mandates and go, 12-year-olds, you need to put your masks on. And I look at a sea of faces and think, I don't know who's a 12-year-old and who's an 11-year-old. I've got no idea. And then the college gets on and those kids are 13 to 18 and we're all mixed up and I'm going, this is way too hard. I can't do this. And so yeah. in the end, I just said, wear the mask if you feel safe. And then I said to the bus driver, if, you, if you're worried about it, I said, let me know. But if you're not worried about it, I said, just take the kids home safely. Angela Lowe says schools have always played a part in vaccinating children. And sometimes, like with polio, 
even the wider community. Older friends and family can remember that there was dancing in the streets when the polio vaccine was formulated and discovered and then rolled out to schools. And nobody batted an eyelid. You went to school, you got your vaccine, and you just carried on with life. In fact, they got people from all around the country to go to local vaccination centres like schools. They called in high country shepherds and farmers and fishermen, and they went to the community places like schools, got vaccinated and carried on with their work. So I think we have always been involved. From my perspective and the perspective of um, intermediate middle schooling, we are part of a continuum. We're part of a vaccination chain. We are in the sort of final stages of a lot of the youth and childhood vaccination series. So we've always played a part in it, that's for sure. How do they actually work? Does the Ministry of Health come along and say, this is when we're coming? You know, what is that process? Actually, that's a really robust process, and they've had some time to get that system to be very um, finely tuned, really good information, child-friendly videos, um, presentations to the students before the vaccination process starts. They come into school, they meet with the kids, they talk about why, they talk about what it means, they talk about the long-term view. Then they give them information to take home, sit down, chat to your parents, they give them links to the video, they give them phone um, numbers so you can call and talk through your issues. They encourage you to talk to your GP. Those systems are outstanding. So the schools have always been um, in partnership with the ministries in order to be able to do that. There emerged always three groups whenever we have a vaccination program. And that is that there are the parents who go, yes, absolutely, read the information, sign the permission slip, send it back. We then just act as a conduit and we pass that information on to the Ministry of Health and they organise how many vaccinators do they need, how many hours are they going to be on site, and then we organise the venue. I would say the majority of our students rock up, get their vaccination, um, and everybody is happy. Then there's the other group that send back their form and the information and just say no. We don't know what their explanation is. We don't know whether, in fact, it's not going to be aligned with the values of that family or it's not something that they um, want at this time. And then there's the other group that go, yes, you know, we are going to get vaccinated, but is it okay if we do it with our doctor, please? We have a good relationship with them. Um, I want to keep my child's mana intact. I want to be there to support my child through this. And quite often coming along to schools where there are hundreds of 11 and 12-year-olds and your mother wants to be there with you, you lose a little bit of face. So we kind of deal with those three groups all of the time. And we're we're absolutely fine with that. That isn't the, it isn't a problem at all. Um, and being part of the vaccination continuum at an intermediate middle schooling level, the community accepts that. Do you feel like there is much more anti-vax or just vaccination hesitancy now compared to maybe a few years ago? I th- I think that there are a couple of factors at play. One, I think there's a strong group of anti-vaccination. They are people whose children haven't received anything ever. They are people who do not allow us to give their children Panadol or things or treat them um, with anything other than maybe an ice pack or something. 
and there's a very small group, don't get me wrong. Then there is another group, I think, that has emerged that I hadn't ever seen before in my lifetime or my career, to be honest, and they are the people that are emerging that don't want to be told what to do when. We need to be mindful that you cannot put on to the 5-12 year olds and their families the sense of urgency that we've been doing now. That's part of the things that I think has um, made people uh, cautious and reluctant and mistrusting is the speed of which we have had to do this. Like teachers have got to be vac- have their first vaccination by Monday, the 15th of November. Those kinds of deadlines and timeframes is what unsettles people. So if we can look at vaccinating our 5 to 12-year-olds in a sort of medium game, possibly even long, though I know that's not going to be entirely suitable, I think that will help people to come around to their own conclusions, to wade through their arguments in their heads and their families, and will have come to um, the realisation that this is an okay thing for us to be part of. Coercing and forcing people when it comes to their children, um, I think we might find that we um, run into some difficulties. Where is New Zealand at with this in terms of choosing to vaccinate children? So we're quite early on in the process, from what I understand. We are waiting for uh, the application to be made by Pfizer to MedSafe and then MedSafe would need to approve it. That means that it needs to undergo a technical review. Once it's approved, then there'd need to be a discussion about how Cabinet wanted to use the vaccine and how it was going to be rolled out. I think it would be reasonable to expect that we would look at rolling out the vaccine next year, not this side of Christmas. As a mum yourself... Is it really important for you to get your kids vaccinated? And and how do you have that conversation with them? So I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. They're both healthy. They don't have any pre-existing health conditions. Uh, My seven-year-old is really looking forward to being vaccinated. One of the reasons for this is he feels like he wants to do his bit to protect other people. He wants to do his bit to protect his grandparents, even though his grandparents are fully vaccinated, He wants that peace of mind. And he's heard me speak positively about being vaccinated. And I've told him that he needs to be patient. We need more data. And then at some point in the future, it'll be his turn. But he's not scared about COVID-19. And I think this is really important for children. It's not about scaring them with scary facts about COVID-19 or or even for parents. It's not about trying to hyperinflate the risks of COVID-19 in order to scare people into vaccinating their children. It's about just being very transparent about the benefits of being vaccinated and where we have uncertainties and why it might be wise to wait for more data. I think that's important. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and a joint newsroom and RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every weekday on any podcast platform. Jeremy Ansell engineered this episode, Alexia Russell produced it, and thanks to Dr Jin Russell, Dr Tawila Percival and Angela Lowe. Mā te wa. 